So I have a quick reading for us, and then Steve's going to take it away. This is from Romans 12, 9 through uh, 21. Apostle Paul writing. This is from the Message Translation. Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Be alert servants of the master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help needy Christians. Be be inventive in hospitality. Bless your enemies. No cursing under your breath. Okay, the next part's appropriate. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy. (laughs) Share tears when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. Our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go buy that person lunch. Or if he's thirsty, get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. Amen. So Steve Brown, one of our elders and leaders and all around pretty amazing guy, um, and unfortunately his lovely bride is not here again tonight, is she? She's not feeling great. We'll keep praying for her too. So um, as many of you know Steve, and many of you know that he's uh, author and writer and uh, journalist and retired semi, right? And now you're doing all kinds of other stuff. Yeah. Um, anyway, he's written a couple of blog pieces, and we've decided to discuss them in two back-to-back weeks, and so I'll just let you take it away from here. Um, all right? Okay, sure. <clears throat> Last week, part one of the blog, it was more focused on looking around us at what's happening around us. This one, I think, is more looking at what's going on inside us. And so uh, I invite you, as I did, to look inside. When death becomes a welcome embrace. I start off with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Why should it always be the bad people who make the revolution? It's kind of a revolutionary statement itself. How could a man who sought the heart of God and lived to serve Jesus involve himself in a plot to kill another human being? Eric Metaxas, in his biography of Bonhoeffer, traces that evolution. A godly man who chooses to intentionally break one of God's commandments cannot make such a choice lightly. Surely a lesser man could rationalize such actions and sin all the more that grace may abound, as in Romans 6.1. But not a person after God's own heart. Bonhoeffer was a theologian, a seeker after God, and a pastor or shepherd. 
He was both a leader and a follower. He took seriously how he would serve his master and how others would learn from him. So he had to count the cost of such a radical choice. He went beyond the idea of being guided by principles to being guided by God himself. This conviction likely came from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which had influenced Bonhoeffer's faith from, a, from an early age. In that sermon, Jesus presented a series of antitheses. You have heard it said, the principle, but I tell you the revelation. To be found faithful, Bonhoeffer would not settle for mere obedience to the written law. He did not want to be seen as righteous, but to earnestly love and serve in Jesus' name. He had long ago settled that it was the role of the church to speak for those who could not speak, and the world around him was growing ever more grim. Persecution by the Nazis was growing more and more atrocious, including state-sponsored euthanasia of unworthy lives, those people with mental or physical disabilities, and abortions forced on women, women deemed genetically inferior or racially deficient. Hitler had declared himself the supreme judge of the German people. When Germany's president, Paul von Hindenburg, died, Hitler appointed himself president. With the stabilizing influence of Hindenburg gone, Metaxas writes, the German people found themselves far from shore, alone in a boat with a madman. The German state and church were being welded together and other nations were reluctant to get involved. Some international church leaders spoke against the German government's actions against Christianity, but Bonhoeffer was dismayed when, quote, the slowness of the ecumenical process was beginning to look to me like irresponsibility. He came to the conclusion that he must become even more personally involved. When he was asked why he helped form the Confessing Church, instead of opposing from the inside the German Christian Church, he said, if you board the wrong train, it is no use running along the corridor in the opposite direction. <laughs> he would have to take his faith to new dimensions, to live what he believed to the hilt. When he encouraged fellow believers standing against persecution, he was speaking as much to himself. This is where we find out whether we have begun in faith or in a burst of enthusiasm. Whether we have begun in faith or in a burst of enthusiasm. His role in the conspiracy to oust Hitler revolved around friendships he had established with influential people in Britain, Norway, and the United States. German generals opposed to Hitler wanted to assure the Allies that they weren't the bad guys, so they were seeking to establish a more responsible government in Germany. Bonhoeffer carried that message covertly to those who would listen. All the conspirators knew that discovery of the plot would likely mean their executions. A fellow conspirator, Henning von Dreskow, wrote, a human being's moral integrity begins when he is prepared to sacrifice his life for his convictions. As the war dragged on and Nazi atrocities intensified, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill loudly branded every German a Nazi. There would be no recognition of any opposition within Germany. How Bonhoeffer faced death is at least as important as how he faced life. Perhaps you've seen the 2008 movie Valkyrie. It tells the story of how the plot to assassinate Hitler with a bomb developed and came to fruition, but failed 
when a massive table leg protected Hitler from the blast. The Gestapo started uncovering the names of all those involved in this conspiracy and began arresting them, interrogating them, trying them, and condemning them to death. Bonhoeffer had already been imprisoned for his work with the Confessing Church, and now he knew his only hope of survival was the arrival of Allied troops now closing in on Germany. But he had long ago accepted the possible consequences of his resistance and had found comfort in what he had learned from scripture and prayer. His words on death teach us about the commitment disciples make when they choose God over life. Early in the war, he wrote this to his seminary students after learning that some of their brethren had been killed in action. To be sure, God shall call you and us only at the hour God has chosen. Until that hour, which lies in God's hand alone, we shall all be protected, even in greatest danger. And from our gratitude for such protection, ever new readiness surely arises for the final call. The Lord makes no mistakes. Whomever God calls home is someone God has loved. A quote from Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 4. For their souls were pleasing to the Lord, therefore he took them quickly from the midst of wickedness. We know, of course, that the God and the devil are engaged in battle in the world, and that the devil also has a say in death. In the face of death, we cannot simply say in some fatalistic way, God wills it, but we must juxtapose it with the other reality, God does not will it. Death reveals that the world is not as it should be but that it stands in need of redemption. Christ alone is the conquering of death. Here, the sharp antithesis between God wills it and God does not will it comes to a head and also finds its resolution. God accedes to that which God does not will. And from now on, death itself must therefore serve God. From now on, the God wills it encompasses even the God does not will it. God wills the conquering of death through the death of Jesus Christ. Only in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ has death been drawn into God's power, and it must now serve God's own aims. While a pastor in London, he had preached, death is hell and night and cold if it is not transformed by our faith. But that is just what is so marvelous, that we can transform death. Before long, Bonhoeffer was drawn into the Gestapo's net, and he was sentenced to death. In his last days, he continued to work as a pastor for his fellow prisoners, comforting them amid their depression and anxiety. He even shared the foundations of Christianity with a Russian atheist. On his last day, he led a worship service. As he finished his closing prayer, two men in civilian clothes came to take him away. His parting words were, this is the end, for me, the beginning of life. After the final verdict was read, Camp Dr. H. Fischer-Hilstrung observed Bonhoeffer kneeling in his cell and later wrote, I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed, his death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, 
I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Two weeks after Bonhoeffer's execution, on April 8, 1945, in Flossenburg, Germany, the Allies marched in and liberated the prison camp. One week later, Hitler committed suicide and the war was over. Among the many words that could be said as an epitaph, Bonhoeffer's vision of discipleship shines brightly. Only the believer is obedient, and only he who obeys believes. Only he who obeys believes. Thank you. Thank you for writing that, and thank you for your very deep thinking on this. So your gift to this community. So I think at this point what I want to do is, is really just kind of open up the floor for just initial reactions to this. Is there anything that anybody would like to comment on? Somebody said to me after last week, well, that was really risky. <laughs> so I do ask that it would be brief a little bit, but whatever, is there something that really jumped, jumped out at you? Or if you have a question, too, feel, feel free. First of all, um, I'm Michael. I, uh, I'm amazed how you took something out of something so dark and bleak that we all know there was no happy ending to and uh, show us that there was, there was people there that still had faith and that did not ever give up. Um, there's many, many, many documentaries about what went on during World War II, and we all know what happened. Uh, but that, that's amazing that you've been able to show me, at least, that uh, there, were, there was a lot of things going on behind closed doors that, that shows that there was still a lot of people still having faith in the darkness that was going on back then. Yeah. Absolutely. I have come prepared in case people do not have anything to share. <laughs> I didn't think that would be the case. <laughs> I find it interesting to note my own reaction, and I'm, I'm a little bit curious to know if anybody else had the same reaction to this, uh, to this telling of this history here. But uh, I don't know about anybody else, but I, I hear of stories like this and I can't help but in my, you know, in a, in a certain place in me, feel like that's not right. And it, and it almost makes me angry, you know, because you think, wow, you know, it's like this is so unfair that the world should, should be this way. And it's interesting because it's so much in contrast to Bonhoeffer's own attitude. Um, and to me... Hearing things like this always throws into stark relief how far I personally have to go in, uh, in, in my own walk. And I think that this is actually maybe the best and most beautiful thing about this, at least from my own personal perspective, is looking at this as sort of a road map um, to looking at when we see Jesus climb onto the cross, when we watch Bonhoeffer walk the steps of the gallows, when we see, these, sto when we see these, these stories played out in front of our eyes, we see the goal where we're trying to get to as Christians and saying, that's what we want. We're not there, 
but that's what we want, and this is what I want my life to become. And it's a guide for our prayers, I think. Like I said, I don't know if anybody else gets quite that direction out of it, but for me, that is a huge deal, and it's one of the reasons why I am such an avid student of history. Um, Thank you. I think many, I would be willing to guess, can connect with what you're saying. Yeah. Any other just initial responses? Could have just handed the mic back. Right, sorry, I, I didn't have anything to say then. I have something to say now. Um, so I've read Eric Metaxas's book on Bonhoeffer, and um, it's a long read, isn't it? Like a thousand pages or something. So um, it was a good book. I really liked it. One of the things that I've always found interesting about Bonhoeffer that has been pointed out to me by uh, a New Testament scholar, uh, Scott McKnight. He's a big Bonhoeffer fan. But he has a, a blog post called um, Who Owns Bonhoeffer? And uh, what I found interesting about that, I had to just look it up because I couldn't remember, um, is he writes that um, this kind of perspective that we take on Bonhoeffer and what he did has actually been read through many different lenses of his life. So he, he lived one life, he did his, his things. But the perception that he's left has been picked up by people across the spectrum. Uh, and uh, just a little pushback for Eric Metaxas, although I really liked his book, he comes at it from a very uh, evangelical perspective, which isn't bad, but there's also uh, the Anabaptists that have an idea of what Bonhoeffer was doing, and the Lutherans especially, who had an idea of what Bonhoeffer was doing, um, that uh, I would encourage anybody, like especially go... Scott McKnight is the New Testament scholar that's written a lot about him on his blog called The Jesus Creed. Uh, but it's really interesting how they elucidate um, more when you see it from those different lenses of what he was doing and the time he was living in and, and how like impactful um, this, this s sincere devotion to what he felt like God was calling him to do and the parallels that we see um, in churches that... <laughs> you know, marry themselves to the state or somehow give their authority uh, to something other than what God's called them to do. So yeah. just uh, something else to Yeah, research. absolutely. We, you missed last week, so we had that discussion just briefly, but I'm glad you brought it up because it's worth having in more detail. Hold on just a second. I just have to make sure I get this name right. So there's a book that was written just this last year by an Anabaptist uh, theologian. His, uh, his name is uh, Mark Thiessen Nation, and it's called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Assassin, question mark, challenging a myth, rediscovering his call to peacemaking. Because as I mentioned last week, Bonhoeffer was a pacifist who struggled greatly with whether or not he should be involved with this plot. And people questioned just what his involvement was. Some early accounting of his life within the first three years seems to paint a picture that he was involved and did back it, not necessarily hands-on, and that's really important to note the difference too. Bonhoeffer was not like hands-on involved in any bombing plots. Um, it was whether or not he, people had his support as a theologian, as a pastor, and as somebody who's communicating ideas and encouraging people to be involved with things. And there's a, there is a huge question mark over just what that looked like. No matter what, as I said last week, what really separates 
Bonhoeffer, from others that were involved, is that at the end of the day, he was not going, not that everybody that was involved would have had this perspective, but he wasn't going to beat his chest and say, oh, look at how great I am. I helped to assassinate Hitler if they would have been successful. So um, he was somebody who deeply struggled with these questions of what do you do with a madman that's going crazy, killing millions of people? Do you, is it worse to take him out or is it worse to sit back and not do anything? How do we act? So great, great question. Great comments. Thank you. Okay, I got two things. Um, one's an observation, the other is a question. My observation, um, I'm back up to the part where um, Bonhoeffer quotes the Bible. He says, the Lord makes no mistakes. Whomever God calls home is someone God has loved. For their souls were pleasing to the Lord, therefore he took them quickly from the midst of wickedness, which is a quote from uh, the Wisdom of Solomon. And then... Um, I want to compare that to the last line. Only the believer is obedient, and only he who obeys believes. And the reason why I want to bring that to your attention is because um, notice that when he says um, God calls home uh, those who he loves, I find it interesting that those who believe are also the ones who obey, which the ones who obey are also the ones God loves. So... He's not going to impart on you the, and how he always asks for God for help believing in what's real and what's not, you know, being able to decipher what's real and what's not. Um, when you obey God and he knows that you'll be able to come with him, he empowers you with your belief. And I think that's really important not to miss here because the whole topic here is that um, Bonhoeffer believes with all his might, and I can bet you that he was also a very obedient man to the Lord. Yeah. Um, the second thing was, is just a question about this part um, here about God does not will it versus God wills it, and how God um, does not will it is a part of the God does will it. And I'm really confused in that paragraph. I'm not sure what you were meaning there or what Bonhoeffer was meaning there rather because it's a quote, I believe. It is. Do you want to further elaborate on that? Well, he's running to grab the mic. I'm going to just say that... something that God can will for us because death does not have a thing against us. It doesn't hold us. God holds it. He holds authority and dominion over it. So he can will us to die because death no longer has mastery over us. In a nutshell, cursory response. When I got to that part of the book, I had to pause for a while and read that several times. I think the key in it is... God makes no mistakes. That we're, in, we're safe in his hand until he says it's time to go. Um, whether that choice is by some evil act or by some beneficial act, God has control of when that happens. And I, I, I think he has control of how it happens too. I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if 
when, when we see people around us die for no apparent reason, so at some point we get to... Yeah, in looking at Jesus on the cross, that's when death became obedient to God. Uh, there's no accidents. He's, he's got the whole world in his hand, right? One we've been singing all our lives, and it becomes more and more real. Yeah, that's a huge question. That's one for maybe, uh, I mean, we discuss this oftentimes in Thursday night Bible studies, Tuesday afternoon Bible studies, other dialogue contexts where we talk about you know, determinism, soft determinism, middle knowledge, all these kind of things as far as how, how something like history unfolds and how we understand God's involvement in it. And there's a lot of mystery that we need to try and hold on to loosely in the midst of all of that. But non nonetheless, we do know that God has mastery over death, and we need not fear it. So um, something that I've been thinking about, actually, in reading this is um, I, the situation actually kind of reminds me of a film I watched, ironically, in German class. Um, <laughs> uh, it was actually about a family uh, in a bit later in German history back when um, there was the East-West issues that came up after the war. Um, it was a family in eastern Berlin, and they had a chance to get out. Um, and the dad actually chose to go, and the mother chose to stay with the children because it was safer to stay and not take the risk of traveling over and possibly getting caught in the process. Because she chose to stay, she then had to become the ultimate uh, communist mother. Um, she actually became the poster child for who you're supposed to be as a single mother under communism. So I kind of find it interesting to think about sometimes um, with like talking about how Bonhoeffer had to choose and like how everybody in Germany at that point during the Nazis had to choose whether or not they were going to take the risk and do something that would probably not only result in their death but the death of their children um, or to join up and stay in the safety of disagreeing, but still being protected by the evils of the state. It's kind of an interesting thought to think about because honestly, um, it's something we talk about sometimes. Um, it's honestly something that a lot of people don't realize quite how difficult of a choice that is because you're facing, like on the one hand, literally the children you have dying possibly in front of your eyes or watching them die slowly as part of a state that is committing atrocities and taking a part in that. It's a very interesting conundrum, and I think it's something that we have been spared a lot in our modern world. We don't have these choices so far, you know? So it's something I think about. I think, uh, I think about our place in, in the world an awful lot, um, about the fact that we have a voice um, in our country, and I often notice people not being involved. So my question is, is it, is it okay to be involved in the um, legislative process 
and um, try to help get beneficial laws passed? You should have asked that earlier. <laughs> That's a big question. I mean, my initial personal opinion on that is, uh, is that, yes, we should be. The question is, how are we? Right? How do we get involved? Um, and that's, that's a big question. You know, what does our involvement in the state as Christians look like? You know, you look throughout history at many prominent figures, Christian, that were involved in abolishing slavery or, you know, multiple ways that people were involved that were, if, if, if it wasn't for their willingness to step out and risk themselves to be involved in that process, we wouldn't have what we have now. Um, and that's not just for this time in this country. We can look throughout history and see those moments and those times. So I don't think we really have the time to go into the scope because it's really not something we're going to be able to offer clear-cut answers. It's something that we have to struggle our way through to figure out how to engage in that process. So, yeah. One, one more. I have something that I want to close with, um, and we have chili cooking next door, and plenty of opportunity for additional discussion, but I don't want to cut this off too short. Does anybody have anything? Last minute? Yeah. Somebody mentioned last week the quote from Albert Einstein, which is basically, the only way for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. And I've been thinking all week about, um, you know, Nazi Germany was obviously running from God. And the churches were assimilating themselves into the culture. And I don't think the United States is necessarily running from God, but the churches are assimilating themselves into the culture. Um, you know, if we ordain homosexual clergy and perform homosexual weddings and, and all kinds of other things, those are just the top two, but... Um, I don't, I don't see us with a leader who will kill six million people, but I do see us um, getting into a place that is very dangerous and being very slippery. And if the silent majority continues to stay silent, then we're condoning the activities of the vocal minority. And I think unless we stand up and say that's wrong in a respectful, non-hypocritical, non-judgmental, loving way, um, we're just going to be on the train running the opposite direction. All right. Did you have any? I just want to add one more thing that uh, we talked a little bit last week, and this is kind of getting in this, the direction of what do we do when the world is going to heck in a handbasket, whatever. And I was remembering that uh, the prophet Daniel, when he found himself in this predicament that the king had declared that for the next 30 days, no one will pray to anybody but me. And Daniel, as was his habit, went up to his room, opened the doors wide, and prayed to Jerusalem loudly. He knew that the law of the Persians and the Medes was unshakable. And he knew that he was likely signing his death warrant. 
that's when he was, he was seized, thrown into the lion's den. Remember the, remember the story, right, about the lion's, lion's den? We learned that as kids. That was civil disobedience. He was being active in his resistance to what was going on. And God delivered him from that. Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach and Abednego. Love that song. Um, same thing. They insisted on serving their God. And I don't kind of paraphrase on what, what they said as they were on their way in. We don't know if God's going to deliver us from this, but we're going to serve him anyway. And I think that that, whether we're going to run for office, whether we're going to carry placards and march, whether we're going to get on our knees and pray, whether we're going to pray in public, in public place, when we've been told not to, when we've been told not to mention the name of Jesus, when we've been told to embrace the directions the country is going, the, the laws that are passed and the rulings that are handed down, it takes a strong person to say no. And this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one hero among many in our whole history who said no. And Jesus said the loudest no of all, I will love my enemies. This, uh, thank you, Steve, again so much for writing this and inspiring this conversation. I, I want to take just, it's just, this will be fast, I think. Um, this is, are just some, re, re, there's simply some reflections. You can, you, can, uh, you can close your eyes, you can keep them open, um, you can just think on this stuff, and hopefully this spills over into further discussions. Assuming, so this is question, reflection number one, assuming Bonhoeffer did involve himself with this plot to assassinate Hitler, did he make the right choice? If yes, how do you square that with our master Jesus? And if not, how do you square that with our master Jesus? Is your life guided by principles or through an active relationship with our living God? Bonhoeffer was big on our lives must be an active relationship with a living God, not guided by mere principles that we can open a page to and follow a flowchart. When you think of acts of righteousness, when you think of doing right, when you think of doing good in your life, do you think of hiding it or do you think of it being seen? Bonhoeffer says we should hide it, but not from the world. You should hide it from yourself. You should hide your acts of righteousness from yourself because they become so ingrained in who you are, you don't even think of them as acts of righteousness. They're just what you do. So when you do your acts of righteousness, do they seem natural? Or when you do something right, do you feel extraordinary? It's okay if you haven't quite gotten to the point where it feels natural because we're all works in progress, where our righteousness is hidden from ourselves. Who are the voiceless in our communities? 
Who, is, who are the voiceless right here that need to have other people speak for them? Who need to have other people defend them? Who need to have other people go before God and go before leaders in our community? And when it comes to this overall approach of speaking for the voiceless, has the church in recent years done a good job of this? How can we do better? What is the difference in your thoughts between a life that's lived in bursts of enthusiasm and a life lived in faith? In the last closing thought that I have, actually there's a lot more on this page, but there's chili, that's right. It might be appropriate with this last reflection. In all seriousness, now, have you thought on death? This is a little bit of what Eric was talking about. Have you thought on death? Have you really stopped and thought on death? We are living in a time when we can, to some degree, avoid thinking about death. Bonhoeffer's parting words, he says, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. Can we come to death and meet it with those thoughts, with those words? Can we say, I'm not afraid to die. I'm not afraid to offer my life. As a matter of fact, I am already dead to myself, living for Christ. And that if whatever happens in this world ends in death, that's the beginning of life. For me to, to die is gain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Have you embraced this? Have you embraced the lack of fear of death, the need not to be afraid of it. Life, life right now, life right here, life in Christ, true life, begins when we can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you. Thank you for each and every soul that's in this room right now. I thank you, Jesus, that we can come together with maybe some different ideas on some of these things, but you, by the power of your Spirit, can still unite us. That we don't have to show up just with a vanilla flavor. We can show up with a Neapolitan or a rocky road. We can show up just who we are and share our thoughts and our feelings, and you hone us. You shape us and you mold us and you make us. You conform us to the likeness of Jesus. Thank you, Master Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for showing us that we need not fear death, that we can die to ourselves and live for you even right now. Help us, Heavenly Father. Help us right now to just be okay trusting you with our lives. We can be okay with whatever our day brings, that we can stand firm on you, unchangeable God unchangeable Christ we praise you, we love you we thank you for this night thank you for the chili we're going to eat in a little bit help it not to tear our guts out (laughs) thank you Father that you help us and give us the opportunity to cry with those who are crying and laugh with those who are laughing we love you